Thank you for downloading our podcast. Apostasy in Hebrews is looking to the provision, a tangible religion, and not the provider, God's promise confirmed in Christ and applied in the Spirit. So often, in the face of trials, we think that we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that he really is all we need. Join us as we study the letter to the Hebrews, as we are encouraged and exhorted to continue on this earthly sojourn in the power of our great Melchizedekian priest. We make our transition into the book of Hebrews from the prophet Zechariah. As we remember in Zechariah, Zechariah sees um, the end-time events as basically moving along. Uh, the day of the Lord, as we saw in chapter 14, is manifested at different uh, times in history, but ultimately it's moving to the goal of arriving and dwelling on Mount Zion. And so I thought it, it would be beneficial if we move from Zechariah and we come to the book of Hebrews, where Hebrews is reminding us that still that eternal rest, that eternal Sabbath, uh, that eternal Mount Zion awaits us, and that's the ultimate place where we go as Christ resides in the most holy place as our true priest. And so one of the things we can ask when we look at Hebrews, and we think of a statement that Tim Keller has made, that uh, when Christ is all that we have, we realize that Christ or Jesus is all that we need. But many times we can wonder if that's really a true statement. But the book of Hebrews, that's its fundamental claim, that having Christ is truly all that you need. And so when we look at this, we're going to start with that question of how do we know from the introduction of Hebrews, how does he set the tone basically in the opening of this letter, this epistle, or would actually argue this sermon, that Christ is so essential for the Christian life? How do we know that Christ really is the one that is all that we need? So as we consider this, we'll see first, God spoke in the past, and secondly, God speaks in Christ. And so let's begin with God speaking in the past. In order to answer this, we notice how the author begins long ago in many, in many times and in many ways. This is telling us, about an ancient history, if you will, uh, the past of how God has spoken to us. And as we look at Hebrews, we may wonder, why would he begin this sermon with this calling of our attention of a variety of ways that God has spoken to us? Well, one of the things we're going to find in this letter, or again, as I'd argue, uh, most likely a sermon that was preached, that as this comes to the church, the desire is that we will see that the sacrifices of Moses, the prophets, all these things point to the one person of Christ. So the author of Hebrews is reminding us that we should not see our place as inferior in covenant history. We have Christ Jesus. If you want to know what is Hebrews about, it's about the significance of possessing Christ Jesus the fulfillment, confirmation of the prophetic word, the one who confirms the promises of God as his definitive agent of salvation. So now, when we hear this and we go through this book, some of the objections I want to just uh, 
lay out at the beginning. Some people say that Hebrews is a radically spiritualized work, meaning that for us to understand Hebrews, we have to see heaven as being this spiritual realm that's a really real world. This earth is just merely a bunch of forms. And so really the author of Hebrews is telling us that in order to have the fullness of what redemption means, we just want to be spiritual. Uh, we don't want to dwell in this physical world. All physical things are evil and necessarily inferior to a heavenly reality. And so this would be basically uh, a Platonistic objection uh, to the book of Hebrews. And so as we consider this, we, we can't really say that that's the fundamental claim of the book of Hebrews. He never says that the priesthood is immoral. He never says that the temple is wrong because it's physical. In fact, when he's talking about the reality of these projections on this world as an anticipation of this age, or an anticipation of entering into heaven, these are models. Models of the physical reality of what we're going to inherit in perfection. This is showing the intention of what God has for his people. To physically commune with a resurrected, glorified people. After all, we think about angels. Angels still have a flesh. The Apostle Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, Christ ascends into heaven as the God-man, still interceding on our behalf. And so it's not that the author of Hebrews is saying the physical world is the immoral world. The spiritual world is the one we really want. It's better to think of projections and glorification, a better way of understanding this, as a glorified physical rest that we long to enter where Christ is seated in the true heavenly sanctuary. Again, using language as a physical realm, calling to our attention something that's glorious and glorified, bigger than what was modeled, but the true reality. And so we shouldn't then see this as a, as a sermon or as an epistle, a letter, whatever you want to say, contrasting a spiritual world with a physical world. But we also know that as the Lord is uh, projecting his creation or his redemption, he's showing us where we are to go, where, where we are headed to, where he is leading us by his providence and grace. We also ask this question, then, what, what is the purpose of this sermon or, or this letter? Well, why do we have this in our Bible? Uh, we debate who really wrote it. Our Belgic Confession attributes it to Paul. Calvin himself didn't really know who wrote it. I believe it was Chrysostom that said only God ultimately knows who wrote this letter. But nevertheless, as we look at this, we can clearly tell it's inspired it's definitely laying out the same themes and understandings of the Old Testament and reality of who we are in Christ. And so, what, what is this letter or the purpose of it? Well, we can actually classify this in, in a strange way, and we probably wouldn't think of it in these terms, but as a moral treatise, as a way of telling us how to live. Now, when I say that, we normally think of, well, I want to go to James, or maybe I want to go to the end of the letters of the Apostle Paul to hear those exhortations, or maybe even Proverbs, 
uh, to hear more practical applications as to how we live. But Hebrews is a book, a letter, a sermon, an exhortation against people apostatizing. Now this is something that's different from what you have in Corinth. Because Corinth, when you have Paul writing to the Corinthian church, there's a lot of immorality going on there. It's, it's more of what we would think of apostasy in our day and age, of engaging in radical partying, engaging in uh, physical immorality. That, that's quite uh, obviously wrong, if you will, that, that you know it's contrary to what Scripture says. We have the Corinthian church engaging in these things. And so that is a form of apostasy, of saying, I prefer my flesh over, you know, living in conformity to God and wanting to honor him. So clearly, that's wrong. I'm not denying that. But for Hebrews, his concern is not so much about the physical immorality that we would see like in Corinth or, or in Greek culture or in our culture today, where we're, we're quite parallel to what Rome uh, was dealing with at the time of the New Testament. What Hebrews is dealing with is a problem of individuals denying the significance of Christ. And this is something that I think is rather profound for Hebrews because it's not that these people are necessarily living in immoral sin. These people still want to be religious. These people still want to study their Bible. These people still want to understand the prophets. But the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, if you don't see the significance of Christ, you are apostatizing, turning away from the promises of God. I mean, this is a pretty strong statement. And so when you think of Hebrews as this moral treatise in the sense that he's making this this case that this is what the prophets have said, here's Christ. And as Christ has entered history, he is a fulfillment, the validation of their word, as we'll see more in our second point. And so this brings us in to the audience, where people say, well, is this a letter that's going to, uh, say, uh, Gentile believers, or is this a letter that's going to Jewish believers? Uh, going again, looking at these arguments, I can make a very persuasive case to you, uh, that this goes to Gentile believers, but I'm not persuaded by that. Once again, I am persuaded this goes to Jewish believers for several reasons. Hebrews has a lot of tone along the lines of Matthew, of just citing the Old Testament. And it's why I wanted to read these verses, because Matthew is actually more precise in saying this was done to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah, or done to fulfill the words of this prophet. In Hebrews, you have citations of the Old Testament that aren't given. They're just quoted. And so the assumption is that the audience would be familiar with these Old Testament citations. Uh, when Paul exhorts the Corinthian church, he recounts the story. He goes through what Israel has done, how they tested the Lord, and summarizes a story. We have in the opening of Hebrews and throughout the book, he'll say things like, it says somewhere. Well, of course, the audience is going to think, oh, I know where that is. Oh, I know that story he's talking about. And so the assumption is his audience is familiar uh, with the Old Testament prophets. At least that's the implication of it. Also, I, I think we can minimize how radical it must have been. I mean, can, can you imagine you grow up one way 
worshiping God, longing for the temple, desiring to worship in the temple, looking to the priesthood, having sacrifices, and knowing this is your tradition. To all of a sudden, this individual comes, dies on a cross, supposedly he's a Messiah, and now you're not supposed to go back to that. And so you can understand the tension of, wait a minute, this is how I was raised, this is my tradition, and now you're telling me that tradition's no longer needed because one guy died on a cross, and, and, and we have to believe that this guy's significant? And that is a Christian claim. He is a Messiah. He is the God-man. And this is why verses 1 through 4 in setting the tone for this letter or moral exhortation or sermon is so important. Because now when we understand that the Lord has spoken in many times and many ways, spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The author of Hebrews is not coming to the church and saying, disregard everything those men said. Those men are foolish. They do not understand the ways of God. Follow me, I know the way of God, right? Right there, that'd be a pretty big red flag. But the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, what the Lord said through that council of witnesses, a plurality of witnesses, that the many prophets, as he spoke in many ways, gave specific prophetic revelation, spoke in visions or communicated through visions, as we've seen in Daniel, Zechariah, and as he, he literally spoke to the prophets, gave them words like we think of Moses putting the words in the prophet's mouth, we find that the Lord is one who has certainly given revelation of who he is. And so Hebrews is not saying, just ignore those men. They don't know what they're talking about. They're, they just made things up. I'm bringing out the real truth. So, so just disregard that whole tradition. That's not what Hebrews is saying. He's saying, I want to tell you, I'm standing on their shoulders. I affirm 100% everything they said is true, it is valid, it is right, and it comes from the Lord. I am not undermining it. And so then, if the Lord has spoken through these prophets, and, and, and we know that their word is valid, how does he speak through his son? Well, this is where we look at this and, and we go back to saying, okay, so if this is a moral treatise warning about denying Christ and apostatizing from the prophetic tradition, I mean, that's really where this letter's going. You deny Christ, you deny the prophets. You deny Christ, you deny your whole tradition. And so when you start seeing this fitting together, you go, oh my goodness. It's, it's not like this is an either or or an optional thing. I have to affirm what they have said, and I need to understand the intention of what God has done. We find that he tells us in verse 2, in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Now the language of last days. This is the author of Hebrews communicating to us the assurance that we are not left without revelation. In the last days we think of the day of the Lord and the day of the Lord. Remember we looked at Zechariah 14 and we saw a manifestation of it. Christ on the cross, Christ's resurrection, Pentecost, but yet we know that we're not in the definitive and all the promises of the day of the Lord because we still wait for the resurrection. So that resurrection is that final manifestation of the day of the Lord. So these last days is a time we're in right now. So the author of Hebrews wants us to understand we're, we're not left without revelation. We're not left without a priest. 
We're not left without a confirmation of God's redemptive promise. And so how does this work? Well, if we look at this, we can find verses 1 through 4 is put together in what we could say is a chiasm. So a way of describing this is you think of a funnel. And, and you think of the wide end of the funnel. Uh, so you have the book ends on either end. And as you go in and, and narrow in, that the funnel gets smaller and smaller until there's a singular point that is trying to drive home. So if your Bibles are open, you can notice the theme coming through in English. So the first and the last, so the wide end of the funnel, we think of verses 1 and 4. We have God speaks through the prophets. So there's a plurality of witnesses. Now we have uh, this promise that Christ is the one who is superior uh, even to the angels. So he speaks to the prophets, spoke to the, to the fathers. Now we have this assurance that something about Christ is even superior to angels themselves. And, and, and so, uh, again, there's something great about Christ going on here. But what's so great about Christ? Well, we go in verses 2 and 3. So we have his last days. He's spoken to, uh, through his son. We have that he's the one who's appointed heir. So right there, it's, it's a promise of what he's going to do, a promise that he's going to measure up to this appointment. Verse 3 now, we have uh, this assurance that he's the one who sits, see at the end uh, by verse 4, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty of God. So we have the promise of what he's going to do, and now we have the assurance he's confirmed it, he's done it, and so we're narrowing in. Going on then, verses 2 and 3, we have the assurance that he's the one who's created the world, and we have in verse 3 that he's the one who's redeemed because he's made purification for sin. So we have, brings in first creation, brings in new creation by his work, makes a purification for sin. And so we say, okay, well then, what's the, the center of this? What, what, what's the point? What's the driving factor of this? Well, you notice then, in verse 3, he is the radiance, the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. And remember, we covered this in a catechism sermon um, dealing with the work of Christ and, and the one we're looking to as a type of mediator. We talked about how the character and radiance, we said the radiance could be like a flashlight shining in a mirror, you see a reflection of it, or it could be the literal light, the, the literal radiance. The character could be a, a character sketch, uh, a sketching of, of, of an image, or it could be the actual character of a person, you know, his character. Uh, this goes against the individual's character, who he is, his attributes. And so it can go either way. So if a Jehovah Witness is familiar with this verse, that's what they'll throw at you. Say, oh, well, this is just a reflection of his radiance, and this is just a sketching of his character. But when you put this verse in the context, it's not up for debate who Christ is in his person. Because as we find out, he's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by his power. So this is not merely a representation of God. This is not God creating some sort of God. This is an attribute that only God has. And so we know that Christ is the full glory of God. And we know that Christ has the attributes of God. 
And so right here, the author of Hebrews is reminding us and exhorting us to realize, do you understand who you worship? You worship the true God of heaven who has taken on the flesh, not merely as a character sketch of God, but the fullness of God's glory dwells in his person, and he is the God-man. Now, when he talks about the work of Christ, you're starting to get these themes, and you're getting this theme of purification, which I think is a very significant word that, that the author uses here in this exhortation. Because his purification, he, he's not denying atonement, right? The covering of sin, he's going to go into that uh, as he develops the theme of, of priesthood. It's not denying propitiation, the payment for sin, what needs to be done. But this language of purification is very significant. Because this language of purification, as it's used in the Old Testament, is language that is needed for someone to come into the presence of the assembly of God. So say someone's a leper, for instance. If someone's a leper, they're outside the community. Now when the leprosy's gone, and they've gone to the priest, and the priest has pronounced them clean, they've gone through their ritual purification, is speaking of the end result, that now this individual can go and be part of the Lord's assembly. So when Christ is ascended into heaven, after making a purification for sins, the author of Hebrews is telling us, why do you need an Old Testament priest? Why do you need uh, the temple? Why would you need a tabernacle when the God of all glory has set aside everything that stands in the way of your relationship to the great God of heaven? This isn't just justification. That's part of it. But we can think of justification as something where it's just God making a pronouncement, but he can still be abstracted from us, right? He's a judge. It's communicating the essence of moving from that blessing to the blessing of adoption, longing for glorification, of wanting to commune with our God, wanting to fellowship with him. Why? Because everything that makes us unworthy and impure to come into his presence has been removed. And then as Christ is seated in the most heavenly place, this is telling us the reality of who our Lord is. This language then of seated at the right hand of God is beginning to introduce to us an important concept for Hebrews. For it's recalling for us Psalm 110, a paradigm king, a paradigm priest, a priest like Melchizedek, that priest king, king of righteousness, the one who has proves himself worthy to sit at the right hand of the Most High, who dwells there. The one who has accomplished his work in such a way that only he can enter into the most holy place without making purification for his own imperfections. But he is the one who truly inherits the name to dwell in the most holy place. And so when we have this name that Christ has inherited, Getting back to what we were saying at the beginning and the end. The promise of his arrival, who he is, the prophets speaking of him, uh, knowing that now he's spoken through the Son. 
having then this understanding of his name that he's inherited. We think, uh, for example, the baptism of Christ is probably the best way to put this in, in the context. When the Father speaks uh, the promise that this is my Son with whom I am well pleased, that is a dramatic assertion. Because the Father is saying this Son will do what Adam failed to do, what Israel failed to do, what all those who have done prior to him to do. He's going to do it perfectly. And he's going to show that he will not heed the temptations of Satan and he will pass and he will go to death and he will be raised to glory by his own accomplishments. So when the author of Hebrews tells us that he has inherited this name, it means that he has earned his place at the right hand of God. He's not just, just, just a kid who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, if you will, and the father just gave him this high place. It's the assurance that he has really done the work that the Father has set out for him to do and accomplish. It is certain, it is done, and it is finished. And so when, when we begin with the book of Hebrews, and we ask this question of, well, how, how do we know that Christ really is sufficient? How do we know that he's really done everything that we need? How do we know that, that he's really the, the one that, that ultimately satisfies us even though we struggle to really see that he fully satisfies us. It's because the author of Hebrews is exhorting the church. Most likely this letter, as we find in Hebrews 16, uh, with the exhortation for it to return to Rome and greet those at Rome, as most likely its intention is to go to a Jewish synagogue in Rome and reminding the, the Jewish individuals in that synagogue of the significance of Christ. And so in terms of this greeting, the author of Hebrews is reminding us that what the prophets have said is not contrary to what Christ has done. They're not in opposition to one another, as it seems is going on in, in their mindset. But Hebrews is saying what the prophets said is actually validated in what Christ has done. What they promised to be accomplished has been finished. And when you say, well, how do we know it's been finished? Well, we know, as we saw, the, the center point of this introduction. He's the exact radiance, glory of God. He's all the attributes of God. He's the full glory of what was promised. This is the reality of what we look forward to. This is the reality of what we have. He's also the one who has inherited and earned the very status that was promised. He has done this. And so as we look at this, we see that this Christ who has accomplished this is not just doing theatrics because he tells us something else about his work. He has made a purification for sins. So this isn't theatrics. It isn't God saying, see what I can do in my son. I can do better than you people. I can, can be faithful. I can rise to the moment and I can inherit heaven I hope you guys find your way. But it's telling us that what the prophets were promising is why I wanted to read from a servant song with the assurance of, of what we have in this Christ and our assurance of pardon. Is that what Christ has done, he has accomplished. Making that purification for sins means we move beyond a temple where blood is shed again and again and again and again to a one-time shedding of blood. It means we move away from a building that Rome could, could tarnish and, and destruct and, and we can have 
you know, Babylon come in and desecrate this place. And we have other times in Israel's history when this happens. It's communicating to us the certainty of our dwelling in life. We are secured. And the only priest who has proved his worthiness after making purification, not for his sins, but our sins, of entering into the most holy place, seated on the right hand of God, as the king of righteousness, the priest king who was promised and who has overcome. It is in him that we have life. And so let us not then see the prophets as contradicting or uh, uh, being in opposition to Christ or Christ in opposition to the prophets, but understanding the intention of what God has, that in these last days, he has spoken to us in his word, through his son, the word of God, the word who has taken on the flesh, as John says, Hebrews picking up, and knowing that this is the definitive action of God, securing us once for all in him. Let us then desire to live for him and conform to him, as his power is at work within us. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.